If you believe that Jesus is coming again and you're looking forward to that, say amen. 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 If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 6. Make your way to Luke chapter 6. We're going to consider today the first 11 verses of this chapter in a message entitled, Jesus is Lord. So we continue on in our study in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we're going to focus today on this idea of Jesus as Lord and what that means to us. Speaking of songs and important songs that help us to remember, there's a little chorus that says, He is Lord, He is Lord. He is risen from the dead, and He is Lord. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we come today with that as our proclamation as a church to be reminded of what the Bible tells us about Jesus and who he is and what it means to us. How does that apply to us that Jesus is Lord over all? We'll begin reading in Luke chapter 6 and verse 1. I'm going to read this in two sections based on the context of the stories that are told. And we'll look first at verse 1 through 5. On a Sabbath, he, being Jesus, passed through the grain fields. His disciples were picking heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands and eating them. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, haven't you read what David and those who were with him did when he was hungry? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat? He even gave some to those who were with him. Then he told them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. In the first scene, Jesus is passing through the grain fields with his disciples. The disciples are taking the heads of the grain. They're eating it because they're hungry. And the problem that arises for the Pharisees is not the fact that they were hungry or that they were taking the grain to eat for themselves. The problem was not what they were doing. The problem was when they were doing it. You see, the rabbis and the Pharisees of that time had made up all of these elaborate do's and don'ts. Is that not the nature of our human nature when it comes to religion and even matters of faith? We like to be in a controlled environment. We like to hold on to the things that we think are important. Sometimes we elevate things that are of lesser importance to greater importance. And sometimes because it doesn't fit our narrative or the way we want to live, uh, we minimize the things that are of greater importance to that which is lesser. And that's the circumstance of what they were doing. So they asked the question, uh, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, lest you think that uh, this type of strict observance was relegated only to those days. It's actually had some application in modern times as well. There's a story from as recent as the 1990s about uh, a sect of ultra-Orthodox Jewish people who uh, encountered an apartment fire. And when the apartment caught on fire, the people were concerned as to whether or not they should use the telephone, telling true story, to call the fire department. So they found the rabbi to ask the question whether or not they should use the telephone to in fact call the fire department. It took him 30 minutes to give an answer. And by the time he gave his answer that yes, it was in fact okay to use the telephone to call the fire department on the Sabbath, uh, three more apartments had caught fire and it was a disaster. 
So in those days, uh, as it could be even in our days, whether it be uh, an ultra-Orthodox sect or be some version of legalism in Christianity that would hold to additional rules and additional uh, limitations on people, they had some elaborate rules that they were following. And Jesus rebuked them and he asked, have you not even read this? This was the equivalent of, have you not read your Bibles? It was like a rhetorical question because, of course, they knew the Old Testament. Of course, they knew this story about David. And he refers back to this story in the Old Testament where uh, David did what he did when he was hungry using the showbread, which had been uh, reserved for the priest, the holy bread in 1 Samuel 21. And his actions demonstrated that human need takes precedence over religious ritual. And then Jesus tells them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Lord of the Sabbath was not offended by his disciples' actions, and the religious leaders should not have been either. But something bigger was happening here, and we've seen this as we've gone through the Gospel of Luke, as the identity of Jesus has continued to be unfolded, and it's now on display Because what Jesus was saying in that moment is not just the circumstances. He's not just talking about David and the showbread and what his disciples were doing. He's making the statement that he is, in fact, God. And he is God, and as the one who is God in the flesh, he is Lord of the Sabbath, but he is also Lord over all. Now we move to the second scene, beginning in verse 6. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. A man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The scribes and Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath so that they could find a charge against him. But he knew their thoughts and told the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand here. So he got up and he stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? After looking around at them all, he told them, told the man, stretch out your hand. He did, and his hand was restored. They, however, were filled with rage and started discussing with one another what they might do to Jesus. In the second Sabbath scene, Jesus enters the synagogue And he finds a man there who had a shriveled hand or a withered hand. This took place on another Sabbath when he entered to teach. The scribes and the Pharisees at this point were watching Jesus very closely. Now, the power of Jesus had already been evident. He had performed some miracles. He had done some things that were obvious that pointed out that he was great in their midst. But now they're watching him, and they're not watching him for his miracles. They're not watching him to try to figure out his true identity. They're watching him with an eye of suspicion. They're trying to catch him up in something so that they could charge him with claiming to be something that he was not, so that they could accuse him and get him in trouble. And the Bible says that Jesus knew their thoughts. Now, this is not just a sub-theme to this story. This is, in fact, a central theme to the story because Jesus, when he left heaven and came to earth, he did not divest himself at all of his glory. 
Yes, he willfully uh, veiled his glory at times so that the people could stand to be in the presence of God. There were times when he limited some things that he would have been capable of doing, but it was not the right time or the right moment to do it. But Jesus in the presence of the people as fully God and fully man was fully capable of doing all that he could ever do. And that had not changed at all. And he knew their thoughts. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, it gives me pause for really thinking about what this means in my own life. You see, Jesus knows our thoughts. He knows our motivations. He knows why we do what we do, why we don't do what we don't do. He knows it all because he is omniscient as God. And he says to the man with the withered hand, rise up and stand here. And so the man did. And Jesus poses once again a question. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? And then he told the man with the shriveled hand to reach out his hand and his hand was restored. Now put yourself in that setting just for a moment. Perhaps this man's hand had been withered or shriveled for his entire life. He would have been in a local synagogue, so people would have known him. They would have known his story. Oh, yes, that's the man whose hand doesn't work. It's shriveled, or perhaps it had happened in some type of accident. But even so, they knew this man, and they knew his circumstance. And in an instant, Jesus tells him to stretch out his hand, and he's healed. That would have been a wow moment for me. I would have been like... That is amazing. He just told him, you know him. He, he's been coming here for years. He's, he's old so-and-so's son. His hand is withered and it doesn't work. And now Jesus has spoken to him and now it's restored. I would like to think that's how I would respond. But the Pharisees, they weren't concerned about that. The religious leaders were not concerned about that. They were filled with rage that Jesus had done it. And Jesus says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Here's the big idea that we draw out of this passage. Not only is Jesus Lord of the Sabbath, this is what's demonstrated in this passage. Jesus is Lord over all. He's Lord over creation. When we see the beauty of what God has made, we see the beauty of the sunshine today. We see the changing of the seasons. We see all God's creative power. We know that without Jesus Christ, nothing that was made was made. He's Lord over all of creation. But he's not just Lord over all creation. He is Lord of salvation. When we call on him to save us from our sins, to forgive us, and, and to put us in right standing with God, he is not only Savior, but he is also Lord. And that's why we call out to him as our Savior and our Lord. It goes together. And then Jesus is Lord over all of life. Practically, it affects how we live and the decisions we make and the priorities that we set and the way we invest our time and our resources and where our allegiance and our devotion is. Jesus is Lord over life. And then as we've already heard, sung this morning, Jesus is Lord over the future, and he's coming soon. So what does it mean, and how should we respond if, in fact, Jesus is Lord over all? 
What should our response to that truth be? First of all, we should believe in Jesus as Lord. We should believe in Jesus as Lord. Now, the word Lord in the Bible is represented by one Aramaic word, uh, several Hebrew words, and then three Greek words. Each of the words designating lordship uh, refers to dignity, honor, and majesty. God as Lord, uh, Jehovah or Yahweh, is the self-existent one. So the name of God most frequently used in the Hebrew scriptures tells us that God is Lord. The Jews, in respect for him, avoided mention of it and substituted the word Adonai. Adonai, meaning Lord, the Hebrew word Adonai, coming from an early word denoting ownership and absolute control. So if we apply this to God, it reminds us that God is the owner of all that there is, and he is the one who governs the entire universe because he is the one who has created it. Not only does he govern this entire universe that he has created, but God guides people and God guides nations into all that is good. When we come to the New Testament, kurios is the word that is most often used. It's one who rules over people. So when we speak of Jesus as Lord, we're saying Jesus is God. When Jesus refers to himself as Lord, he's saying that he is God over all. And even to say Jesus is Lord is to utter a statement of faith that he's the divine king and he is the ruler over all. Now you might have heard the statement along the way, uh, Jesus is Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. I've heard many well-meaning preachers make this statement through the years. And here's what is inferred by that statement. It's well-meaning, but I'm going to tell you why it's misguided. The sentiment of the statement is that we are to yield to Jesus fully, that there should be no rivalry in our lives uh, ahead of Jesus, but the statement falls short because the lordship of Jesus is by virtue of who he is, not by virtue of our response to him. So it doesn't matter whether or not I respond to Jesus as my Lord, he is still Lord over all. So when I'm telling you that it's important to believe in Jesus, your belief in Jesus does not thereby make him Lord. Yes, you're surrendering to him through faith, but he's already Lord by virtue of who he is. And if Jesus is Lord, then his identity calls for a response. I'm reminded of the ministry of Paul and Silas who came to the Macedonian city of Philippi in Acts chapter 16 for their missionary work. And there they stirred up great trouble because they encountered a young girl who had an evil spirit in her who is described as a spirit of divination. Essentially, this young girl who was indwelt by this evil spirit had the ability to foretell things that were going to happen in the future. And and she had this ability kind of as a seer. And the Apostle Paul, in the power of God, cast the evil spirit out of her. And as a result, the missionaries were arrested and beaten and imprisoned because she had handlers. And these handlers were making profit off of her because of her ability. They were making money off of what she could do. 
So Paul and Silas found themselves in prison because of their service to the Lord, and they began to pray and to sing hymns in prison, and the other prisoners were listening to them. And in the midst of all of that, God brings an earthquake that shakes the foundations of the prison, and the doors were opened. The Roman jailer who was there is awoken from his slumber. He wakes up from his sleep, and he thinks that all of the prisoners are gone. Now, let me just tell you, it would not have been a good thing to be a Roman jailer and to be asleep and to let all the prisoners go. In fact, it's probably going to cost you your life. And in fear of the circumstance, thinking he's lost all the prisoners, he draws his sword and he's about to kill himself. And in that moment, Paul calls out to him and tells him, not to harm himself. The man falls down trembling before them, and he asks the most important question that a person could ever ask. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Do you know that's the most important question you could ever ever ask on this side of eternity? What must I do to be saved? What must I put my faith in in order to be saved? The most important question that we could ask, and the question itself, I think, was in a sense an expression of faith, uh, and the man did not know uh, Paul or Silas necessarily. Uh, he didn't know the God that they served, but he knew that he needed to be rescued, and, and apparently uh, he must have understood what he was asking. He, he must have understood what was going on because he knew why they were in jail, They were in jail because of what they had done, so evidently they were capable of doing something. And here he is answered with a reply from the servants of the Lord. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved, you and your household. And then it says they spoke the word of the Lord to him. What was the word of the Lord that they spoke to him? I think the content of the gospel, the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, that he's the only way to be saved. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And the Bible says that the jailer believed and he was baptized and he brought them into his house. He set food before them and rejoiced, believing in God with his whole house. You see, there's rejoicing when God rescues us and God changes our lives. There's rejoicing. And I I thought about it this morning. I've been a Christian now for over 40 years. I came to faith in Christ as a child. And I've known some people who have fallen by the wayside and they went out from us because they were never of us. But I've never known one person of whom the Lord Jesus Christ took hold of their life who said along the way, I'm sorry that I got saved. I'm sorry, I'm a Christian. I regret it. I wish I'd have never taken that step. I've never run into anybody in my entire life. Why? Because salvation brings peace. It brings joy in a way that you can't experience it otherwise. Because it's peace and joy from God, your creator. Romans 10 says, if you confess through your mouth that Jesus is Lord... And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You'll be saved. Believe in Jesus as Lord. Then 
you need to follow Jesus as Lord. You need to follow Jesus as Lord. Now, we've already seen this in the earlier chapter in Luke. Uh, Jesus calling his disciple, beginning to call his followers to come and follow him. In Luke, we see the example of that in Luke chapter 5 in the calling of Matthew. But time and again in, in the scripture, in the gospels, we find Jesus using that simple terminology, follow me, and people would follow him. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 4 and verse 18 and following, it says, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. To follow Jesus meant to leave job security, uh, to leave familiarity, to leave what was comfortable to them. To follow Jesus means a radical change of direction and lifestyle where we begin to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Is that not what repentance is in itself? Repentance is a change of mind which leads to a change of behavior. Repentance is a change of direction where you're turning from being lost because now you've been saved. You're turning from the darkness and you're turning to the light. You're turning from hell and you're turning to heaven and it's all wrapped up in Jesus. That's what it means to follow him. The crowds, they would flock to Jesus. One day Jesus was teaching and he gave the orders to his disciples uh, to go across the, to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And a scribe came up to Jesus in that moment, as recorded in Matthew chapter 8. And he said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus responded, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And the man said, I will follow you, but I have some other important things to take care of first. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. He said, man, that was insensitive. Well, he was not insensitive to the situation, but he's making it clear that following always means leaving something behind. So when I say to you that you need to follow Jesus as Lord, what I'm saying to you is that you need to follow him in the sense of sharing in his sacrifice and suffering. Jesus said, if any man desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And I think we do people a disservice, even when we present the gospel to them, that they don't understand that sometimes it's going to be hardship. Sometimes it's going to be difficult. And in fact, sometimes when you first start following Jesus, it's going to get a whole lot harder before it gets better. That's the reality. Because now when you're following the Lord, you're involved in something that matters, something that is eternal. And your spiritual enemy doesn't want that to happen. And to follow Jesus as Lord means that we love him as the priority of our lives. Friend, your devotion to Jesus in order of priority, listen to me, comes even above your own household. Now track with me just for a moment. The danger of idolatry can come not only from what is bad, the danger of idolatry can come also from what is good. If we sacrifice what is best to follow after what is good, then we've lost sight of what it means to follow Jesus. Now, obviously, following Jesus 
I shouldn't have to say this, but I'm going to say it. Following Jesus makes us stronger husbands and fathers and wives and mothers and sons and daughters and so on. But the point is, when you follow Jesus as Lord, he's top priority. The preacher Kevin DeYoung, uh, when he was uh, delivering a sermon on this very subject, gave two illustrations as it relates to the family. He said there are two competing notions of the family in our culture. Family as a straitjacket, as in the 1998 film Pleasantville, or family as the center, as in the 2000 film The Family Man. He said this, in one view, the family keeps you from everything you really want. In the other view, the family promises to give you everything you ever really wanted. And Jesus promoted neither of these views. There's no doubt the second view is much more common among Christians, and it does overlap some with Christian virtues, but it gets uh, some crucial things wrong when it comes to the family. And here's what DeYoung said. According to the Bible, the family is good, necessary, and foundational, but it is not ultimate. Now here's the point that I want to make, and he drew from this as well. Today, in churches just like ours and in evangelical churches across the country, many families in the church have functionally displaced God for their family. Now, I'm about to make some of you mad, so just, you're just going to have to get over it. But it's coming, so buckle in just for a moment. So, well, Pastor, how could you know such a thing, and how could you make such a radical statement? Well, here's how I know. Families go missing from church for months on end for their children's extracurriculars. People can't be bothered to serve in the church because of their commitment to their family. People can't be troubled to give faithfully to the Lord's work because they're spending hundreds of dollars a month on the extras so that their family has a good experience. Listen to me very carefully. Family is a gift, but it is not ultimate. Money is a gift, but it is not ultimate. Work is a gift, but it is not ultimate. Jesus is ultimate. And that drives our priorities. And listen, I understand this. I've had young children, and, and we've come up all along the way, and we're constantly been in that struggle of how do you practically make those decisions and set those priorities and make sure that Jesus is ultimate. I understand this is not easy, but Jesus is worthy. I can tell you that. And there have been some times along the way that we had to say, this is not best for us as followers of Jesus. And we saw our commitment to him as priority. You say, well, you're the pastor. That's fine. Well, let me tell you, I'm a pretty resolved individual, and I would have made the same decision had I not been the pastor. That's not what makes my decisions. I'm not ultimately very concerned about what y'all think of me. And I mean that graciously, I do. But I'm very concerned about what Jesus thinks of me and whether or not I'm following him faithfully. Following Jesus as Lord comes from a changed life and will be evidenced by a changed life. And then finally, we should proclaim Jesus as Lord. 
Now, if we believe in Jesus as Lord, we follow Jesus as Lord, then we should be eager to proclaim Jesus as Lord. Do you know that in the first century, just the statement, Jesus Christ is Lord, it was a statement of confession. It really rose to the level of a creed in a sense. Because you could only say that Jesus Christ is Lord, having been directed by the Spirit of God to do that. And saying that Jesus is Lord was the fundamental proclamation of the good news. And we're saying that he is our master and that he is the crucified, risen, and reigning Lord. That he is in charge over all of human history. But you know what? It's a lot easier to say Jesus is in charge over all of human history. Jesus is in charge over all of creation. Everybody say a resounding amen. But is Jesus Lord of my daily decisions? Is Jesus Lord of my resources? Is Jesus Lord of my time? Is Jesus Lord of my priorities? You see, this is where it really begins to apply. And this is where we get in a challenging position. And when we proclaim Jesus as Lord, we can't do it in our power. It has to be by the power of God. The prophet Isaiah, foretelling the coming of the Messiah in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 2, said that people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And on those living in the land of the deep darkness, a light has dawned. That's what we want to see happen in people's lives. Because spiritual darkness is the condition of people who are not in fellowship with God. You say, well, why, why do people in the world act like they do? Because they're in darkness. Had you not experienced the grace of God, you would be in the same darkness. Don't forget what it's like to be lost when you get saved. That happens to us. We forget our condition of what it was like to be lost and what it was like to be groping around in the darkness looking for answers and looking for solutions and looking for a way out. And when the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ comes into our lives and we're delivered, we can't forget what it was like to be in the darkness and the people who are still in the darkness. Jesus is the light of the world and he says we're the light of the world in him. And the light comes on when we become a follower of Jesus. We become beacons of spiritual light in Christ. Ephesians 5 and verse 8 says, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Therefore live as children of light. Colossians 1 and verse 13 says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. We've been talking for a number of months now about the Hoosier One emphasis. Uh, Really uh, almost a year now. And the Hoosier One emphasis is essentially a challenge across Southern Baptist life to people like us in churches like ours to be faithful in sharing the good news with other people. In fact, Jason and the band have the opportunity right now to travel around the country and they're on several events that are focused on a rally around Hoosier One and they've been doing that regularly. So this is something that is really taking on uh, some strength and, and movement among people in churches like ours. And one of the ways that we're trying to practically use a visual to do that is out here in the hallway going toward the Family Life Center. On the right hand side, you'll see a wooden construct there on the right and it has our tree uh, imprinted on it. And then down in the bottom of it are some ping pong balls. And there's some, uh, some instructions there on the wall for you. But here's essentially what it is. We're asking you every time that you have a gospel conversation with somebody where you present the good news of Jesus uh, to write the, the first name of the person on that ping pong ball, drop it down in there. And I hope that it will be full and overflowing as a visual reminder of the faithfulness of our church 
to proclaim Jesus as Lord. We're just now making you aware of it, but I pray in the coming weeks it'll be a, a growing thing that we'll see that'll be a reminder of our faithfulness because Jesus is worthy. So I say to you today as I come toward a close, Jesus is King of kings and he's Lord of lords. And I close with this illustration. On June 5th, 1998, a firefighter by the name of Timothy Stackpole was severely injured in a five-alarm fire in Brooklyn. Two of his fellow firefighters were killed. More were injured in a collapse. Timmy, as they called him, spent over two months in the burn center with fourth and fifth degree burns over 40% of his body. He endured surgery after surgery and months of painful rehabilitation. He had two goals. One was to recover and spend as much time as he could with his family. And two was to return to full duty in the job that he loved. Against popular opinion, he succeeded. And on March the 10th, 2001, Timmy returned to his lieutenant's job full duty. He was promoted to captain on September the 6th, 2001, and was in the fire department of New York's headquarters off duty the morning of September the 11th. And what do you think he did when the call came to the towers? He responded and he went. Here's what his widow, Tara Stackpole said. Timmy had a huge heart and shared his faith and compassion and love with everyone he met. His remarkable story has inspired many, and his love for the job has touched many firefighters across the, the nation. He was a loving husband and friend, an adored father, and a loving, devoted son and brother. Listen to this. He was a hero not only because how he died, but more importantly, because of how he lived. May we be known for how we live for the Lord. And may we be willing to go into the darkness with the light. Let's bow our heads together as we pray for just a moment. Here in just a second, the band's going to come and lead us in a closing song. And we're going to stand together after I pray. But maybe something I've said today has stirred your heart and you need to meet Jesus as your Savior and Lord. Maybe you're the who's your one in the building today that needs to come to know Jesus. We invite you by faith to receive what he's done for you and to trust in him as your Savior and Lord. Today could be a good day to be saved, to come to know Christ. Maybe God stirred something in your heart about a, a need for a, a more faithful devotion of following Jesus as Lord. Maybe you need to be baptized in believer's baptism or commit to be a part of this church family or to take a next step of obedience. Whatever God's calling you to, would you, would you listen through the Spirit and the Word and really let Him be the evaluator of your life so that Jesus is truly Lord over all that you do? Father, we thank you for the time you've blessed us with today. It's been a good day just to be here and, and sing and pray and give and now to hear from your word. Jesus, may you be Lord over our lives because you're already Lord over all. 
Help us to understand what that means and to make the hard decisions and to do it by your grace and for your glory. We give this time of closing response over to you. And however you see fit to work, Lord, we'll give you the credit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.